All right, everybody, shall we start in the Bible this morning? Is that a good place to start? Turn into your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, verse uh, 22. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Uh, I'm going to read this passage. It's a passage where Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Catholics call him St. Paul, um, same dude. He's the really cool guy in the book of Acts. He is at Ephesus. He's been there for a while, teaching for a while in Ephesus, one of his favorite places to be. And then we all know, of course, because we're nerds, that he wrote a letter to the, to the Ephesians. Ephesians? Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesonites. And, and we have that book today called the book of Ephesians. And so this is, as he's leaving, he says some really important things. It's like his, it's called his farewell address to the Ephesians as Paul's leaving. So these words are really important to him. Let's look at it. Acts, uh, what did I say? Chapter 21, verse 22. And it says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit still speaks to us today? Do you believe the Holy Spirit warns us, tells us things? I believe that with all my heart. I believe the Holy Spirit is alive and can show us things. That's what Paul says. And then verse 24 says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of of God's grace. And so he has to go to Jerusalem. He has to leave them. He's about to tell them his, his final words. Verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone to about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. His final words. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you and to the whole, to the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which, has brought his own blood, which was bought by his own blood. I know that after I leave, Savage wolves, do you see that? After I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So, be on your guard. Remember that these three years I have never stopped warning each of you, day and night, with tears. Paul warns us against bad doctrine, against people that come in and teach things that are wrong, that will take us away from the Christian truth. And we're in here, this is the Mill Sunday School, because we go, like to go a little deeper, inner knowledge. And I joke around and say that in a good way, we're nerds. Because we like learning about, the, we like learning about God and going deeper into the Bible. So if you're newish around here, you'll look around and you'll probably see a lot of nerds. In a good way, of course. Let's pray to get started this morning. Jesus, we are honored that you are here, God. Would you help us learn from church history as we discover church history in the 19th and 20th century, God? Would you speak to us through your acts on this earth in the United States as we look back and look at church history, that we can see you and your movement in the United States as we as Christians come from that heritage? And so we just praise you this morning. We invite you in here on a deeper level to open our eyes, open our spiritual hearts and our ears to hear you directly this morning, Jesus. So we're honored, and we're just happy that you're in here, Jesus. And everybody screamed, Amen. Amen. 
All right, I want to look at, uh, if you pull out your skillets, the skillet was like that little thing that you got at the door. Um, can, can I borrow one from some? Does somebody have an extra one? Thank you. I can have your Bible back. <laughs> this is the skillet. If you open it up, there's places for you to take notes. And you'll notice that lots of people around you like to take notes, probably because they're nerds. And that's a good thing. But first, we know how to do the review and the intro to the isms. We are studying church history in the Mill Sunday School all this month. This is July. Every new month is a new topic. Ever since the beginning of Sunday School, which was just about three years ago, we've taken a month, and uh, a month about every semester. So maybe four times a year, we'll hit church history. When we began in early church history, we've worked our way all through these three years. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is the last installment, the last month in church history. So we're going to go right up to the present. And the last, day, the last Sunday of this month, I think it's the 25th, I think uh, we're going to look at church history into the future, trends and things that are going to that that how Christianity is forming today for tomorrow. Sounds fun, huh? I'm just I'm really excited about next time as well. Next time I'm going to start a lesson on charismatic church history in the United States. And so if you, if you don't know this, New Life Church is charismatic. What that means is that we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in prophecy. We believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. We believe that miracles still happen today. And there's a, there's a history and a tradition in the United States called the charismatic movement that we're going to talk about next time. If that doesn't excite you, I don't know what will. But we, we need to, last time we did this huge review, I hope you enjoyed it. We did a review from early church history all the way up until today. Do you remember that? Did it bog you down with too much? You're supposed to say, no way, give us some more. <laughs> and so I, I really enjoyed doing that. Today, we're going to look at different isms. Do you see on the notes, it says modernism, postmodernism, fundamentalism, evangelicalism, fundamentalism, postmodernism. Do you see all these isms on there? I'm going to go over these words and explain to you why these words are so important. And looking over the history of, of the church history, the last 100 years, why these words are so important. Because here's the deal. You get up early, right? I mean, you had to get up pretty early to be here. Let's not joke around. You could have slept in all day and gone to like Sunday night church, right? You could have, but you're here. And so since you're here, since you woke up, I'm going to give you a lesson about the isms and why they're important in the last 100 years of church history. So modernism to postmodernism. Let's look at that. I'm going to write on the board. Is that okay? I'm going to try to be nice and neat because usually I get excited and it ends up being a, a big mess up here. But I'm going to try to calm down, think about what I'm writing, and uh, make it look nice. So modernism and then postmodernism. What is modernism? It's a, it, it, we have to look at history just for a second and say that modernity or modernism, or uh, what's another synonym for that? I guess just the modern age is from about, uh, it's, wait, did I spell that right? I didn't. Dang it. I was trying to, I, I just told you that I was going to be good. And here, here I am, circus clown. Okay, 1800s-ish. These are all ish kind of numbers because there's no one particular date. Both of these words, modernism and postmodernism, are words that incorporate a grand scheme for how to understand um, the culture, understanding how people think. They're, they're big, big words, big ideas that help us get our 
I guess, hands kind of around this idea of just how the average person would think. And today, modernism, postmodernism is going to be today. Modernism, 1800s-ish through 1950s-ish. And that the issues are, are important because there's no like one particular date. And so modernism, the terms, some terms in modernism that um, are important, that, that people, you just talk to an average person in like, let's say, 1920. They're going to like the idea of something called absolute truth. They're going to like the ideas of black and white. And by that, I mean that there's things that are wrong and there's things that are right. There's things that are good and there's things that are bad. Things that are black, things that are white. That's not like today. Think about it. If you were to talk to an average person, let's say you go downtown and hang out in the coffee shop, Starbucks, Pikesburg, whatever. You start hanging out there. You start talking to the average person. Are they going to like the idea that everything falls into either black or white? No, they're going to say, everything's kind of gray, man. Who, who are you to say that this is right and that's wrong? Everything's, you know, I, I have different ideas. I have different ideas of what truth is. But in modernity, between this time, people were much more susceptible to thinking about absolute truths, black and white. Um, here we could also put down the rise of science and how sci- and, and the, um, there was people that, that liked science a whole bunch and they uh, got into Darwinism, and they were real live atheists. I think it's kind of hard to find a real live atheist today. They're usually agnostic. Someone that's truly an atheist will say, there is no God. That's what an atheist is. An agnostic will say, I doubt that there's a God. But an agnostic today is probably spiritual in some way. Think about it. Think about the average person you talk to. They're probably spiritual, don't you think? They're not just saying, oh, I don't worship anything. I'm not spiritual in any way. They're all saying, I have difference. I just like the idea of spirituality. Right? Think about it. And so that's, that's, um, that's postmodernism is today. Today, uh, probably from like the 1950s-ish, this movement of postmodernism um, up until today where people think quite differently than the average person did in the modern age. Do you see the difference? And you know, how, how many of you have heard the word postmodern before? Of course you have. Lots of you have. Maybe, maybe not all of you have, but it's a, it's a big word. It's a word that really incorporates the thinking of today. And so take just a minute, just one minute, and, and maybe by yourself or with your little buddies at your table, or you could join another table, and just write down words or phrases that have to do with postmodernism. Do you understand the assignment? Words or phrases, ideas that go along with postmodernism. You just got 60 seconds, so do it quick. Marcus, let go. Did you get a few words? Did you get one or two words? A phrase? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to write down some of these, and it's perfectly okay to yell out answers. Usually in church, it's not a good thing to yell out answers, right? Everybody say, yes. <laughs> like if you go to main church and you start yelling things out, some ushers will probably come up to you and nicely ask you to leave. But here we could yell 
some things out. Um, just don't yell out any profanities, please. <laughs> just kidding. Relative truth. What else? What else kind of represents post-modernity? Liberalism, sure. Liberalism. Relative truth is probably the biggest one. I'm going to put a red star around this one. That's the one that Bill gave us. Relative truth is the idea that there is no truth that's better than any other truths. All truths are relative. Think about what that means for just a second. It's kind of weird. Any other words or phrases people want to yell out before I talk about relative truth? Protagonism? Sure. Kind of uh, this idea that uh, it's kind of a... What's the opposite of optimism? (laughs) Yeah, pessimism. I'm going to write down that. Pessimism. I don't know that I spelled that even. Remark. That's horrible. If you're, probably, if you're new, you're just like, who is this clown? Um, I, I, I just have a problem spelling. That's all. Um, what else? Any other words or phrases that someone wants to yell out? What's that? The God of your own understanding? Oh, the, the God, the goddess of your own understanding. Yes. Uh, your own, you. I'm just going to write down you is really important. Your own understanding, because I probably can't spell understanding. Um, oh, I'm going to write down, unless somebody has one more. One more out there. What? Flexible, yeah. Everybody's kind of like in this period of uh, just flex. No one has an idea of really where things are going. I'm going to write down the, a big word here, experience. Experience is uh, law. L-A-W. Nothing can trump experience. And I'll talk about that uh, later on in this lesson. But first, relative truth. I have a video clip. Are you guys ready to show? There's a video clip of a guy named, um, have have you heard of Ravi Zacharias? He's the guy that wrote this quote on the back of your skillet. We call these things skillets. On the back it says, it's a quote that you'll probably have to read like three or four times to understand. To sustain the belief that there is no God, atheism has to demonstrate an infinite knowledge because their declaration is tantamount to saying I have infinitive knowledge that there is no being in existence with infinite knowledge. Did anybody understand that? You probably have to read it three or four times to understand it. But here's what the idea means. uh, Relative truth. Someone saying that all truth is relative is like that this is a, a fascinating. Someone told me this the other day and I was just fascinated by it. Someone saying that there is no absolute truth is like someone saying there is no white rocks with black spots on them. Someone says, well, I'm a geologist. I'm going to tell you that there's no white rocks with black spots on them anywhere in the earth. You're like, well, how do you know that? Have you seen every single rock in the entire earth? Have you been down to the core of the earth to, to see that there's no white rocks with black spots? That's what someone would have to say to make a claim that there is no truth, that all truth is relative. Because they're saying that there is no such thing as an absolute. The same thing with someone saying, there is no God. That's what Ravi Zacharias is saying. He's saying, for someone to say there is no God, they have to know everything to say that there is no God. They should at least say that I doubt the existence of God. We'll talk more about this in a second. Is that going to work? Yes. All right, Ravi Zacharias on um, kind of like what I shared yesterday. I mean, last Sunday, but I kind of botched the idea. This is Ravi Zacharias himself. 
taken the student right to my front door yard. And uh, they wanted me to see it, and I wondered why. And when I walked into that building, I said, this is a building I know. There are staircases that lead in there. There are pillars of stone wood portraces. And the man joining me said, this is an architect of postmodern building. And the architect said, his life itself has no purpose. Why should I build this? So he built it at random without any purpose or growth. He said, I have one question for you. I said, so what's that? He said, did you do that with a foundation as well? Ooh, that's a good one, huh? I kind of shared that story last week, but I, I botched it, and I felt that he told it himself better, and someone found that quote. Has anyone ever heard of The Truth Project, a series of DVDs put out by Focus on the Family? Amazing. It's like 10 hours of knowledge of God takes you from the beginning of, of just the idea of absolute truth on down through science and God and the Trinity, all this cool stuff. If you want to know more about that, ask the guy in the tech booth. His name is Josh. Hi, Josh. He's really cool. He knows all about the truth project. But that's, uh, that's the truth project. Um, let's look at, uh, actually, let me give you an analogy real quick. If there's two people talking, let's just say there's a Buddhist and a Muslim talking in 1950 and maybe they're just talking they're like how are you doing oh i'm doing good Did you see the fourth of july blah 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 maybe they start talking about baseball and they're like well the yankees just won over the phillies did you know that uh that's like 1950 <laughs> and uh <laughs> and they say uh well uh joe dimaggio is going to retire and mickey mantle is going to take his place center field in the yankees and they're like oh yeah blah 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 then they start talking about their religions and the buddhist is like well i believe this about buddhism and the Muslim is like, well, I believe this, and I believe the Quran. And they talk, and they're friendly, and, and, and at the end of the conversation, they may say something like, well, friend, let's just agree to disagree. Let's, let's have this idea that one of us is probably right, one of us is wrong, because there is absolute truth in the world. This is modernism, 1950. And they say, at the end, I'm just using this as an example, they might say, well, let's just agree to disagree. They shake hands and they leave right? Nice conversation. Let's fast forward in time to 2007. Today, let's say people are talking today. The same, uh, maybe it's a very similar, maybe it's the son of the Buddhist and the son of the Muslim guy in 1950. And they're talking and they're saying, oh yeah, baseball's cool. I saw the 4th of July, fireworks, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then they start talking about religion. Oh, I'm a, I'm a Muslim. I believe in the Quran. And the Buddhist is like, well, I believe in the teachings of Buddha, blah, blah, blah. And they end their conversation, not with, let's agree to disagree, but they end their conversation with, well, what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. Don't you have you heard that before? The, the idea that there's relative truths, that, oh, your truth is good for you, and my truth is good for me. Do you see how radically different those two conversations are in their endings? I think that kind of summarizes the difference between postmodernity and modernity. All right. Let's take a look at modernism. Are you ready? Say, I think so. <laughs> All right. Modernism had its own struggles with the church. The passage that I read this morning about Paul saying that savage wolves will come in and destroy the flock. Um, there, there are ideas in modernism that spread into the church that started destroying the flock. Let me give you some ideas about how modernism um, isn't... <clears throat> let me say this. 
Modernism is much more conducive to Christianity than postmodernism is. It's mu- I think it's much easier in modernism to be able to explain Christianity well to a, to a modern person, whereas postmodern today, I think it's a little harder to explain Christianity to someone that's postmodern in their thinking. But modernism has problems of its own. They had, uh, there was an infiltration of the higher criticisms of the Bible, specifically uh, lots of German theologians saying, like really getting into the Bible very critically and saying, well, all these miracles, they don't happen now, so maybe they didn't happen then. Maybe Jesus, when he, um, he, he fed the 5,000, just fed them little grass sandwiches. That the, that the miracle of, the, of the, the, the multiplication of the bread really didn't happen. Those ideas started to, to, to influence the church as a whole. And some denominations started splitting. Um, so the idea that there's no supernatural beliefs, the idea of this higher criticism of the Bible that says, let's, let's think just logically about the Bible and say, well, this possibly, could, Jesus couldn't have possibly rose from the dead because people don't rise from the dead. Miracles don't really happen because... But we don't really see miracles today. So how can miracles happen in the Bible? There was this, this, this savage wolves of ideas coming into the church that said, well, maybe all of this really isn't true. And that's what was infiltrating the church. And so the church, uh, and I'm talking about the church, like the big church, everybody that's a Christian, in the modern age started to say, well, we're different. There's some of those churches that are saying, yeah, Jesus really didn't do miracles. We're different than them. And they started to form together in what today or what then was called the fundamentalist movement. And that's the other word on your sheet, fundamentalists. And I have to talk just for a second about fundamentalism because I say fundamentalism and you think crazy people that blow things up and burn themselves, right? I mean, it's, it's how we use the term today. If I was to say, oh, Muslims like to suicide bomb buildings, we say, whoa, 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 Muslims don't like to do that. Just the radical fundamentalist Muslims do that, right? If I was to say, oh, all Christian, if you heard someone say, all Christians um, blow up abortion clinics or go to gay pride parades and hold up horrible signs that say horrible things about the homosexual community, uh, like, you know, fags go to hell, or just really uh, offensive things like that, you would say, well, listen, I don't do that. All Christians don't do that. Just maybe the fundamentalist Christians that have this hate thing going on do that kind of thing right that's the, how the term is used today right that's how we use the term fundamentalism you have to get that out of your head for just a second everybody just like pretend that it's in their head and like take that out of their head and put it on the table you don't have you don't have to really do it thank you though <laughs> um take that idea out and fundamentalism co- comes from um just getting together the fundamental beliefs of christianity so some people um, got together, let me give you the exact date, in, uh, let's see, 1917, and put together a book called The Fundamentals, A Testimony of Truth. Just the small little book of the beliefs. <laughs> Isn't this the funniest book you've ever seen in your life? It's so weird. Um, what this is, is in 1917, and this is a reprint, this isn't that old, or maybe it is. I think it's a reprint, and maybe it is that old. It's like falling apart in my hands as we speak. Um, but this book was written, it's a collection of essays from a bunch of people um, in, in the 1917 1970, uh, made a collection of, of core beliefs of what the Christians believed. They came up with five things that every Christian should believe. 
And this book is called The Fundamentals of the Christian Faith, uh, A Testimony of Truth. It was written and then sent to church leaders. It was sent to um, big wigs and big pastors, Sunday school leaders. It was sent out to try to refute the ideas of modernism entering into the church and said, we need to nail down our beliefs as Christians and, and, and separate ourselves from the people that have this modern mindset. And so there's five things. I'm sure you could probably guess them because a lot of you are really smart in here. Three, four, five. Five big ideas that every Christian should believe. Shall we start yelling them out? Was that fun? Yelling in church is so fun. Yell out an answer. What's something? Uh, and one of the five beliefs that we hold as Christians that's foundational, that's fundamental. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm going to put, uh, let me put it in their, in their lingo. That Jesus, uh, J.C., Jesus Christ, lived sinless and physically resurrected. That's the word resurrected. Yes, that Jesus lived a sinful life and was physically resurrected. I apologize for that. Jesus is God. Yes, that J.C. was God, is God, equals God, and born of a virgin is is important in in understanding uh, who Jesus was. What else do we believe? As Christians, all Christians should say, yes, I believe that. Yeah, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Here's how they put it. They uh, They say something like, you need to be born again. Born again. And that means that you can't, not by your own works, you don't be a, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you're not going to heaven on the basis of what you do if you're a good little boy or a good little girl. You're ba- you go to heaven based on the idea of what you do with the knowledge of Jesus Christ and being born again in Him. Two more things. They're the harder ones. The second coming. Man, you guys are good. Second, that Jesus is coming back. The second coming of J.C., Jesus Christ. And then one final belief. Uh, let's see, where is it? The Trinity is, uh, I would say that would probably fall under, this, kind of fall under this, that Jesus is, in fact, God. God is the Holy Spirit. Um, atonement, second coming. Oh, that Jesus lived a sinful life. Wait, we said that. <laughs> Dang it. That Jesus was God. Oh, the Bible. Hello. That the Bible is, uh, and then they, they, their wording for it is inspired word of God. So those are the five beliefs that a ton of, uh, this book was just put together and edited by a guy named R.A. Torrey. And lots of people from around the country of different denominations helped write this book that said these five things, and obviously a whole bunch more, uh, lots of details about each one of those things. Um, and, so, and, and so this began, became the fundamental beliefs of Christianity, and that's where we get the fundamentalists. And so the fundamentalists in the modern age, in the 1950s, actually 19, uh, early 1900s, was a really good thing. Fundamentalists, good thing. But then the fundamentalists started saying, well, if we believe all these things, we need to look like this and that and another. Let me give you some examples. The fundamentalists, after time, um, began saying that a Christian under no circumstances should dance. 
Just kidding. A Christian under no circumstances should taste any alcohol. A Christian under no circumstances should watch any movie. All of you that saw Transformers and Die Hard this last week, <laughs> you couldn't be part of the fundamentalist movement because as this movement started, started along in time, they said, well, we need to look like this or that. And they made things. I mean, obviously, are, are one of these five things up here, you shouldn't go to movies. I don't see that. One of these, I don't see not going to movies as part of one of these things. Um, other, other such beliefs, as they said, all fundamentalist Christians should be premillennial dispensationalists only when it comes to understanding the book of Revelations. Some of you might know what that means. Um, that, that Christians, fundamentalists, should only be Calvinists and not Arminianists. That Christians should be uh, extremely anti-communistic. I mean, that, in that time, it was a really big deal. That Christians should be somewhat anti-intellectual and not read uh, commentaries and things about higher criticisms of the Bible. That you shouldn't read that at all. You shouldn't dig deep into your Bible. You should just read it and believe it. I mean, Sunday school would be dead if we held that, right? I mean, that's all we do is go deeper into the Bible. And so I don't think we could be fundamentalist Christians as this movement started going and taking, I would say, a turn for the worst. Um, let's see. Here's what I think. The, fun- the fundamentalist movement hunkered down. You know what that means? Kind of like hunkered down into their church for the, for the purpose of not letting any bad doctrine. They were afraid of bad dro- doctrines getting into the church. They were afraid that someone might go out and start dancing or watching Transformers. To them, that was like, whoa, you can't be a Christian and, and dance. You can't be a Christian and uh, watch Transformers the movie, which I still need to see, by the way. Isn't that horrible? I haven't seen it yet. I know. I don't know what I've been doing. Um, and so... Do you see how the movement that started off good, I mean, this I see as a good thing. Don't you think this is a good thing? I mean, besides the fact that it's a weird-looking book, that, that narrowing down our beliefs to the top five things that we believe and holding that together is a good thing. Don't you think? I think so. But then making all these rules and legalizations led to the idea that the fundamentalist movement became extremely legalistic and maybe a little crazy. And that's where we use the term today. We use the term today to say, Fundamental Muslims, fundamental Christians are the ones that are radical and, and do bad things and radical things, right? Yeah, that's where we get the term. And so, out of that movement, out of the fundamentalist movement that said, let's hunker down and just stay in church and not let any bad doctrine get in. Let's barricade the walls and not go to movies, not go dancing, not do this or that, have only these certain beliefs. Out of that, do you see how there's no evangelism in that? If you're hunkering down in your own church, I mean, if we all went down and you're hiding from the world, that's not a good thing. And so out of that movement came the movement that you've probably heard of before called evangelicalism. Raise your hand if you've heard that word before. Evangelical, evangelicalism. That, this is where the movement comes from. This is where it gets its history, around 1950s-ish. So uh, let's see, I think I'm going to erase this. Is that okay? I'm sure none of you are still copying it down. If you are, I could give you the notes later. Um, I'm going to talk about evangel- evangelicalism in my blue pen. So out of, uh, let's see, so mod- let's do a little review, shall we? So in modernism is the idea that the secular cultural phenomenon that, that, that said things like uh, that science, that said that science 
and uh, is key, is, is above all, and that if we look scientifically at the Bible, we have to say that Jesus didn't do miracles. That's what the modern movement kind of said that was anti the church. And so out of that, we get the fundies, the fundamentalists. That's funny to me. And then out of the fundamentalist movement, we kind of get this legalism. And out of the legalism of the fundamentalist movement, we get who we are today. We would call ourselves, New Life Church would call ourselves evangelical. And that, this is part of our history. Evangelical. And do you see it in the name? You know what evangelism means? Evangelism means going out and giving a testimony of truth about what Jesus has done for you. That's what evangelism is. Bringing, witnessing to the good news. That's what gospel means. The good news of Jesus Christ. That's what evangelism is. That, that's in the root of who we are. Evangelical. And so this is part of our history. Do you know who is pretty key in helping form this movement? Yes, Billy Graham, of course. Billy Graham, our good buddy. Does everybody know Billy Graham? I mean, I can't say anything bad about Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, uh, when he was in college, was a fundamentalist, for sure. He went to a university called Bob Jones University. Do you have any of you heard of that? A lot of people like to make fun of it for some random reasons. Uh, they're very fundamental still to this day. Billy, Ga- Billy Graham came out of Bob Jones University, an extremely fundamental school, and then started turning away from that into something that, that's now today called evangelicalism. And so Bob Jones himself said this about Billy Graham. I mean, imagine saying this about Billy Graham, for goodness sakes. Billy Graham disobedient to the God's word and accepting the liberal views that are so anti-biblical. I mean, you can't, you can't say that about Billy Graham. It's Billy Graham. But here's what Bob Jones was coming from, a fundamentalist understanding of to be a Christian meant no going to see Transformers, no dancing, no alcohol whatsoever, all these doctrines, Calvinism, premillennial dispensationalism. You had to believe in all that stuff to be a Christian. And so Bob Jones is saying that about Billy Graham, who is, is starting to begin the evangelical movement. And the evangelicals, um, we believe three things. You know what those three things are? We take all five of those and really condense them down even more into just three things. That the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, and three, you must be born again. That's what an evangelical believes. And so we all are evangelicals, and I like the word. Do you like the word or not? Some of you are like, eh, I don't like the word. It's too big of a word. I like the word Christian. I, what, can't we all just say we're Christians? No, we can't. <laughs> Here's why. Because I, let, let's just say, let's take, for instance, the Mormons, for instance. Do the Mormons call themselves Christians? Yes, they do. They say, yeah, we're Christians just like you, right? And then we would say, no, our understanding of, of what it means to be a Christian is a little different than your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And they'll say, no, we, we follow Jesus. We're Christians, just like you. And we'll say, no, th- there's a different term. Um, we're not really the same Christian. I've been to churches. I've sat in churches with my own two legs. <laughs> with my <laughs> so I've sat in churches. I have to say it. I've sat in churches with my own two buttock. And I've sat, and it's, I don't even want to tell you the denomination, but I sat there, and I heard the preacher say, Today, we are going to learn about how Buddhism can help us understand Christianity. So I kind of thought, like, what? And then the pastor started saying 
that Jesus is a way to heaven, that Buddha and a Buddhist way of thinking is a way of understanding who, who God is, and, we, and all these paths lead to God. Is, and, they're, and they're calling themselves a Christians and a Christian church. Would we call them Christians? We'd say, wait, no. I mean, Jesus just isn't a way. Jesus is the way. And, and to not believe that is to, is to say probably that you're outside of Christianity. And so the term Christianity is just, I mean, it's a fun term. It's a good term. It's an obvious term. But it's too obvious. It's too big of a word to use. And so I like the term evangelical. And so I could say to a Mormon, oh, you're Christian because you're a follower of, your, you know, a follower of Christ, but that Christ is a little different. And so go ahead, call yourself a Christian, but you're definitely not evangelical. And the Mormon would say, yeah, we're not evangelical. But we would say at New Life that we're evangelical Christians. That, that we, I could go back to that church where I sat down and, and say, you guys, are, you're calling yourselves Christians, but you're not evangelical. And they would probably say, yeah, we're not evangelical. We don't believe that the Bible is the only way, uh, the only book for, for Christians. We don't believe that Jesus is, in fact, God and the only way. We don't believe that, uh, that you have to be born again. We believe that there's other ways to go to God. And so I like the term evangelical. Can you see why I like it? Because the term Christian is just means too many things to too many different people. And so that's why I don't like it, on that basis alone. So, evangelical. Do you like the term? Yeah, it's a fun term. It's good. So here, I want to talk, I want to end with, uh, I have like 15 minutes, which is a, quite a bit of time, to end with um, post-modernity. And post-modernity is, is what's going on today. So, and it's the term that we talked about, post-modernism. Um, you know what the abbreviation for post-modernity is? POMO. Have you heard that before? Like I took all these classes in, uh, in seminary because I was just really interested in post-modernity, and they would just always refer to it as POMO. I thought, that's pretty cool. I like that. POMO. But post-modernity uh, is the idea that's prevalent today, and I told you that I was going to talk about experience being um, law, experience being the ultimate trump card. And here's what I, I mean by that. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of studies that, that maybe some of you would like to see um, because, because we're all kind of nerds in here. Um, and that's okay, right? This is a safe place for nerds. Everybody say, yeah, it is. <laughs> if you're not a nerd, we welcome you and just, just hang out with us. You'll become one. I guarantee it. Um, uh, so there's all these studies that say that Christianity today in, in our culture in America today is very, very similar in how people think to the ancient early first church. Think about that for a second. They'll say things like, well, before the Roman Empire fell, there was this huge deterioration of the family, that divorce was rampant, that people just divorced each other, um, and that's kind of happening today, right? That there was in the ancient Roman culture, before the Roman Empire fell, there was all this sexual sin going on, and everybody was okay with houses of prostitution and just sexuality being rampant. Whereas today, same kind of thing, don't you think? There's a lot of sexuality happening today, and it's perfectly okay. What about um, that people in the ancient world, the ancient uh, Roman culture, had all different sorts of beliefs. Everyone had their own personal deity. If you were in the ancient Roman um, time period and you weren't a Christian, you might go over to somebody's house for dinner, and then after dinner, you might go to their basement, light a bunch of candles, light some incense, and then just sit there and try to experience 
a personal God of, uh, that who, like an angel or uh, we would say a demon that was looking over you, that you would try to communicate and have an experience with this little G God. Sound kind of familiar to today, that people want to experience God? I mean, think about what Oprah says a lot about angels looking out for you. I mean, it, that it's, it's obviously got its own differences and nuances, but there's lots of similarities. Do you see it, or is it just me that sees these similarities between now and this ancient Roman Empire? I think it's fascinating. And so the idea that experience trumps all things, that, that if someone says, well, well, I experienced this. You can't tell me that's wrong because I experienced it. Do you want to hear a quick analogy? It's about chiropractors. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a chiropractor. Raise your hand if you like chiropractors, if they've done some good for you. Lots of us, right? Now, what if I was to tell you that chi- there's no, and, and uh, I'll, you could come up and argue with me later um, about the chiropractor thing, but there's no scientific medical evidence, no scientific study that says what chiropractors do actually helps you. I mean, it's, it's, it's out of the reach of science. It's, it's alternative medicine, but there's no scientific evidence that says that what chiropractors do actually help your back. You're like, you're like oh, I didn't know that. But here's the, 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 most scientists, most medical studies might say that chiropractor stuff really does work because of a placebo effect. You know what that is? You know what a placebo is? A placebo is when you're testing two things, you want to have something that tests nothing. A placebo tests nothing. Let me give you an example. There was this study that was done that tested uh, pills. So it's like a little pill capsule. You know what was in it? Nothing. There was nothing in it. It was just a little pill capsule. And the doctor would hand you this little pill capsule and say, this is a, a very high potent stimulant like caffeine like rock stars, does anybody like rock stars, or Mountain Dew, it's a stimulant. Take this pill, and then we're going to test you. And so the doctor would hand you this pill, and what's in it? Nothing. There's nothing in it. You'd hand you the pill, you'd take the pill, and 93% of the people said, man, I feel stimulated. I, wow, that's amazing. And this is extremely fascinating, extremely fascinating. 32%, let me get that number right, 32% of the patients that took this capsule, what was in it? Nothing. 32% actually showed physical signs that their heart rate increased, their, uh, their, 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 they uh, sped up their pulse rate, their blood, their blood pressure increased, uh, their reaction speeds increased, and their perspiration increased. All effects of an actual stimulant. Amazing. Amazing that there was an actual, because they believed that the the pill was a stimulant, their bodies actually reproduced the effects of a stimulant. Wild, don't you think? And so, to go back to the chiropractor thing, which you can come up to me and argue about later, there's really no way to test what the chiropractor does to you, and uh, there's really no way of testing that placebo, but most scientists, most medical doctors would say it probably works on the basis of a placebo effect. And so if I was standing out a chiropractor, let's say I was boycotting a chiropractor, and I had, let's say, like this big study in my hands. I was holding this study of how chiropractor, that scientifically proves that chiropractors are doing nothing. And so you're walking in, and I hand you this and say, read this, you're wasting your money on chiropractors. What would you tell me? You would say, well, take that paper and go stick it in the hole in the ground. Because I've been to the chiropractor, and I feel better after going to the chiropractor, Right? experience 
trumps science. I mean, if you're, if you're arguing with somebody um, and you're like, well, it's this way. No, it's this way. And then someone, you all can always trump it by saying, well, I was there. I experienced it. And, you, and you'll say, well, you know, look it up on Wikipedia. The facts just aren't there. Trumpeting the experience trumps everything in our culture. Post-modernity is all about personal experience. Is that wrong to experience things as far as being a Christian? No. We just have to learn that most people in our generation, in our day and age, in post-modernity, that, that to them, experience is the, is the highest thing. To them. And so here, I'm telling you how to be a good evangelist. I'm telling you how to be a good witness. You don't necessarily have to get a Bible and show them. Um, like in the, in, the, in the 60s, was it Campers Crusade or Navigators that had the four spiritual laws? Anybody know? Campus Crusade, you think? So Campus Crusade had these four spiritual laws, and you would show these four spiritual laws to people, and they would become Christians. And it was extremely effective. But that effectiveness wore off. Because nowadays, you say, okay, here's four spiritual laws. They would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling me there's a spiritual law? I don't believe in absolute truths. I believe that maybe they're laws for you, but they're not laws for me. Here's the best way to evangelize people. Are you ready? If you're writing this down, it's, I mean, you don't even have to. It's just so obvious in our culture. Tell them your testimony of how you came to know Jesus Christ. Tell them your personal testimony. And then invite them to church. Invite them to the mill. Invite them to Sunday school. Invite them to church where they could see people worshiping, where they, where they see people learning and experiencing God. And then afterwards, take them out to lunch and say, so what did, did you experience anything? When everybody was raising their hands, you probably thought that was a little weird, right? They're like, yeah, that was a little weird. Everybody's jumping around, not used to that. But did you experience anything? And they'll probably say, yeah, maybe I experienced something. Maybe that something that I experienced was spiritual. That's the perfect way to witness to people. In my opinion, it's the best way of how to witness to people in our culture. Because experience trumps everything. Experience trumps even scientific fact. If you were to explain all these reasons why you think God exists and give them... I mean, there's proofs for the existence of God. There's nine proofs for the existence of God. Thomas Aquinas invented them in like the 1600s. Do people want to hear those? No, not really. They're like, eh, you know, prove this, prove that. I don't know, I don't know. I could look it up on Wikipedia and see it for myself. But if they experience it, can they argue with it? In our culture, no. Experience trumps everything. Let me read for you uh, in closing. This, um, this is something that uh, the, the president of Fuller Seminary kind of wrote, and I went to Fuller Seminary. I got my master's degree from Fuller Seminary. I have a ton of respect for the president of Fuller Seminary. His name is Richard Mao, and he is known for having conversations with Mormons, having conversations with Muslims. Like he was, the Mormons brought him in to some uh, convention and had him speak, and he's a Christian. Hello? Like it shouldn't be happening. It's because, and, and he would actually talk about the differences between Christianity and and evangelicalism and Mormonism. And it's just fascinating. And he sometimes gets a lot of slack for being the person that's in communication with all these different groups. I think it's silly. I think we should be relevant and in communication with lots of different groups. Don't you? So here's what he says. He says, At a recent gathering of secular college professors, one teacher reported at his school that the most damaging charge one student can lodge against another is that person is being judgmental. He found this pattern very upsetting. 
You can't get a good argument in class going anymore, he said. As soon as someone takes a stand on an important issue, someone else says that that person is being judgmental. And that's it. End of discussion. Everyone is intimidated. Many of the other professors nodded knowingly. And then here's what Richard Mao says. There seems to be a consensus that the fear of being judgmental has taken on epidemic proportions. It is the call for civility just another is the call for civility just another way of spreading this epidemic? If so, I'm against civility. But I really don't think that this is what being civil is all about. Christian civility does not commit us to a relativistic perspective. Being civil does not mean that we cannot criticize what goes on around us. Civility doesn't require us to approve what other people believe and do. It is one thing to insist that all people have the right to express their basic convictions. It is another thing to say that they are right. Civility requires us by the first of these principles. But it does not commit us to, a second, to the second formula. To say that all beliefs and values... To say, and this is, this is the most important part of this, to say that all beliefs and values deserve to be treated as if they were on, this, with, on par is to endorse relativism a perspective that is incompatible with the Christian faith and practice. Christian civility does not mean refusing to make judgments about what is good and true. For one thing, it really isn't possible to be completely non-judgmental. Even telling someone else that he or she is judgmental is rather a judgmental thing to do, don't you think? And so we need to be relevant, ladies and gentlemen. We need to be relevant and understand where people are coming from. And this idea of post-modernity and getting our, getting our hands around this idea will help us communicate to the people that we work with, the people that we go to school with, and help to us to be more relevant to where they're coming from. Because Jesus is Lord, right? The fact is, is that Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's, it's a very judgmental, it's a very not nice thing to say. But if it's true, and I believe it is, then it makes all other religions wrong. And that's a very judgmental thing to say these days, don't you think? But if what Jesus said is true, then it's true. It's an absolute that there is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. And we just have to, we have to be relevant to that idea in a culture that says that that's extremely judgmental. We have to say, maybe it is, but maybe it's absolute truth. And I believe it is. Let's pray.